So in high school, there's one t-shirt that I just wanted extremely badly. One t-shirt, all right? So um, it's a t-shirt that not many people had, and it wasn't just one that you could go buy off the shelf, all right? So um, now this t-shirt, it, wasn't, it didn't look super cool. There's nothing really fancy about it. All it really had was like one phrase that went across the chest, but it's the phrase that made this, this shirt so special. And here's what the phrase said, the two-minute half-mile club. All right, so I ran track in high school, um, and the most like valued race on our whole entire track team was the half-mile race, all right? So this is a brutal Brutal race. So it's two laps around the track. If you can kind of envision like a track, if you look at the Olympics, you think about the Olympics and you have the master track this out around there. It's two laps around this thing. So 800 meters, 400 meters for each lap that you take around the track. And it's basically a sprint. Like the whole two laps is basically a sprint. So it's just you end and your body is just excruciating in pain. Like they're so, so difficult, such a difficult race. And if you ran this race around two and a half, uh, the, uh, if you ran the half mile in about two minutes, um, you had a really great chance to get on our, our two mile relay team. And this two mile relay team almost won state every single year. And so it was just the goal of like the whole entire team that you could run two minutes in a half mile race so you can make this team so you'd have a chance to win state every single year. And so it was basically the goal of every single person on our team that they wanted to run two minutes so that you could get on this two mile relay team so that you could win state. And my senior year, I finally did it. I finally did it. It was uh, at an indoor track meet. So we went to the University of Arkansas. It was one of the best track programs at that point in time um, in the whole entire country. And so we went to this race. You had to qualify to get into it. So our team goes, we qualify, we get in, and we, have, we get on the indoor track. So the indoor track is actually half the size of a normal track. And so it's actually four laps instead of two laps. And so I get up there and we're racing against one of our like biggest rivals in the whole state of Oklahoma. That's where I grew up was the state of Oklahoma. And so I get up and I, the, the gun goes off and we take off. And so the race is going on. I, I don't really know. I don't have my normal bearings around like going on inside of me because the, the lap is, uh, it's four laps instead of two laps. And so I'm just a little off in terms of like the muscle memory that you develop whenever you're going out and doing your practice and stuff. So I'm just giving it all I have, right? And so it ends up just being me and another guy at the very beginning, at the very front of this whole entire race, like one of, our, one of the teams that is our biggest rival in the state of Oklahoma. And somehow, like, I outkick him. It means, like, I had the, the biggest push at the very end to get across the finish line. And so I get across the finish line. It's, it's loud in there. It's like this, it basically feels like a, a, a horse-like stadium, like where you go and you do, like, uh, horse rodeos and stuff inside. It's basically what it's like. So the sound is just bouncing off the walls everywhere. So my track coach is yelling at me at the end of the thing, I was like, I just won. I don't know why you're yelling at me. You know what I'm saying? I, I did something good. You don't need to be yelling at me. So I get over closer to him. And here's what he says. My coach was, his name was Coach Sammons. I'm not going to try to impersonate. I'm not good at impersonations like Andy is. So I'm not going to try to impersonate because I just sound like an idiot. And basically, here's what he said. You did it, kid. You did it. You ran it in two minutes. And so he, pull, he has one of these shirts with him at the, on the spot. He pulls out the shirt and he gives me the shirt. 
And it's like the pinnacle of my whole high school career. It happens right then and there. Now, here's why this moment was so special, all right? There's two reasons. One is the actual accomplishment, but the other one is also the quest, all right? So it's the thing that I've been working towards basically the whole entire time that I've been running track. And I finally did it. I mean, to get this shirt is almost like a symbol of greatness on this track team. You have about 50 people that are on our track team. And so it's almost like a symbol of greatness for all those people that are on the team along with you. And so it's like, I finally did it. I finally made it into this prize company. But it's also special because of the quest that it took to get there. I mean, I'm talking years of just putting my body to the test of trying to get it ready to go run a race to this time that I've set as my goal. And it, it, the whole entire thing, I mean, all the, the hills that you run, all the laps that you've done around the track, all the, the pain and toil that you put your, your body through, like it all feels like it's finally been worth it. I got the t-shirt. I did it. I finally got it. Now, here's the bummer of the whole entire story. Um, uh, the next week, I lost it or the t-shirt was stolen. <laughs> so it's like, man, all this work, and it, you look back and it's like, I don't know if it was worth it. <laughs> but I, I did it. I don't have anything to show for it now. But the whole thing, it's like I both the accomplishment and the quest is what made this whole thing special. Well, tonight we're looking at a passage, and in this passage, what I think we'll see is that we see a story of two of Jesus' disciples that are on a similar quest. They're on this quest and they want to have a, a place of significance. They want to achieve a place of greatness. We see this confirmed by Jesus in verse 43. He says, whoever wants to become great among you, basically thinking about the question or the request that's made to Jesus by these two disciples. So then make this bigger quest to Jesus this enormous request to Jesus. The other disciples, what we hear is that they actually get ticked at these disciples because they even asked. And then Jesus, he uses this moment. He uses the whole entire moment in order to bring in the disciples and to reorient them, to teach them, to direct them about what actual greatness really looks like in God's kingdom. And so here's what I want us to do tonight. I'm going to break the story down into three different parts, all right? And here's the three different parts. I titled the first part, What We Want. Um, we all want what these two brothers want. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, this is something that's deep down inside of all of us. We all want what they want. The second part is Jesus knows better. Um, Jesus sees the big whole picture that these disciples and even us, we can't see like Jesus does. And then at the very end, Jesus gives this new rubric of greatness. He redefines what greatness is for us. And it's a really, really difficult thing. And so I want us to wrestle with this. I want us to think about this together as we're working through it tonight. And then we'll conclude with some application. Now, before we dive into the first part, I'll reread the first part of the story so we're all refreshed in this. But before I do, this is one of those passages where it's really easy for us as we're working through it for us to think of other people. You know what I'm saying? Like you hear a story and it's like, oh, this, is, this would be really great for so-and-so. They really need to hear this story. 
They're the ones that really need, if you're looking at what Jesus is trying to say about greatness, so-and-so, fill in the blank, really, really needs to hear this truth tonight. But if we were gonna read it in the way that Mark and even Jesus is trying to portray to us, we think about ourselves first before we think about other, other people. What he's trying to do is what he's trying to do with this story is it's like he's putting up a mirror in front of us for us to look back at ourselves rather than placing a hand grenade in our hand that we're to lob at somebody else. You know what I'm saying? So as we're reading through this, like, man, think about yourself. Reflect on your own life. Think about your own motives. Think, think about the things, the deep longings and desires that are in your own heart before you think about anybody else and what they may need out of this passage, right? So um, before we dive into this first part, let me give you some context for where we're at in Mark because we ended in chapter seven last week and now we're all the way in chapter 10. So Jesus and his disciples, they're on their way to Jerusalem, all right? So this is like Jesus's final last trial, like uh, his last trek to Jerusalem before he goes and he dies on the cross. And so Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus has just made the third prediction of his crucifixion that's about to come up. And this third prediction is the most detailed account that he's given to all of his disciples up to this point. So in a matter of just a few chapters, Jesus made these three predictions. This is the most detailed account that we get right before the passage that we're looking at tonight, where Jesus says that he's going to be condemned to death, that they're going to mock him, that they're going to spit on him, that they're going to flog him, and then they're ultimately going to kill him. He, he lays all of this out before his disciples. And then the very next thing that we see from Mark is also happens in the gospel of Matthew is that we get this account of Jesus with James and John and the rest of the disciples. So let's look at verses 35 through 37, what we want, what we all want, not just James and John, but what we all want. Here's what it says. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. All right, so this is a bold move. Upon just what they've heard, Jesus' final prediction about his death, this gruesome death that he's going to hear. John and James, they come to Jesus with this big request. It's a bold move right after they've, what, what they've just heard. They say, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. And what we see here in the response to this request is just the kindness of God. Jesus responds to them, what do you want me to do for you? He asked them, See, Jesus is a lot more gracious than what we would be here in this moment. These are the very disciples that were with Jesus on the boat as the storm hit on the Sea of Galilee that came and took Jesus by the shoulders and are shaking him and screaming at him and saying, don't you care that we're about to die? And then Jesus predicts his, his death for the very third time, the most detailed that we've seen up to this point. And then Jesus' response to them is, what do you want me to do for you? So, so kind. And then they answered him, allow us to sit at your right hand and at your left in your glory. So look, James and John are like children in this passage, all right? Here's the thing about children. They're willing to ask what most of us are thinking, but aren't, aren't ready to put to words. You know what I'm saying? I got four little kids. They ask just anything and everything all the time. 
Now, we've put these filters on our minds, we put these filters on our tongues that we have these things that we think inside, but we know aren't things that we are supposed to go and say, but James and John, they do the thing that kids do, and they declare the things that we're all asking and thinking, and what they ask is they want a place of glory. They want a seat at the right and left hand of Jesus. And they want this because of the symbol of what these seats hold. It shows significance, it shows power, and it shows greatness and authority. And these are all things that we associate with these seats of the left and right hand of Jesus. Now, before we drag James and John through the mud, what we really need to stop and reflect on are a couple of things. The first one is this, that we all want greatness and glory. And look, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. All right, so there are certainly aspects about James and John's requests that happen within this passage, and we need to tease out those things. But where we need to really start first is the orientation that James and John have towards glory and greatness that resides in all of us. We all possess this. There's something deep down inside of us that wants a place of significance and worth and glory and greatness. And this is not necessarily a bad thing, all right? We as human beings, another way of saying this is that we're designed for this. We're designed for a place and a desire for glory. So think about this, all right? We're all created in the image of God. That's what Genesis chapter one tells us, that we are created in God's image. And the Bible tells us that God created this world in order for him to display his glory, his significance, and his worth. Now, if you think about all the creation that he spoke into existence, he created one particular creation by which they could see they could identify and they could respond to this glory. And who was it? Is mankind itself. Mankind was created in such a way in the very image of God that whenever they see glory, they see significance, they see worth, they're able to recognize it and then to also respond to it. The Westminster Catechism puts it like this. It's the first question of this catechism. It says, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So you see two things that happen here, all right? The first is that we've been created to recognize this glory, like I just said. For us to give the glory that God is worthy of and deserving of, it first requires that you can at least see it, that you can recognize it that you can identify it, that there's some being that is God himself, that is above all creation, that spoke it into existence, that thought it up, that put the pieces into place in order for all this to be here, you have to first be able to recognize it. And then secondly, what we see here is that we're created to pursue it. The chief end of all men is to glorify God. There's a pursuit here that takes place inside all of us that we're all created with. There's this hardwiring that happens inside of us that we're all oriented towards glory. Every single one of us. I love the way that this pastor, Paul David Tripp, puts it. He says it like this. Admit it. You're a glory junkie. 
That's why you like 360 degree. He obviously doesn't do basketball all that well because this is not the way that you kind of like describe this, this whole entire feat. But 360 degree between the legs slam dunk. Like that's not what they say at this slam dunk contest. All right, I'm just saying. Um, very nerdy pastor thing to do. So, or that amazing hand beaded formal gown or the seven layer triple chocolate mousse cake. It's why you're attracted to the hugeness of a mountain range or the multi-hued splendor of the sunset. You're hardwired by the creator for a glory orientation. It's inescapable and it's in your genes. So look, the place to start here is to recognize that we all want glory and this isn't necessarily a bad thing. We're all oriented towards it, so we shouldn't drag James and John through the mud for their desire, for this greatness, for this glory. We're all wired for that. What we do need to see is where it goes wrong. So we all want greatness and glory, but the problem is where we look for it. The problem is where we pursue it, where we go after it. This is where it really gets off the tracks for us. The Apostle Paul helps us see Uh, the way that we get off the tracks in our inclination for glory in Romans chapter two, he says this, he will repay each one according to his works. This is speaking of God. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good. Look, so affirmation of this, seek glory, honor, and immortality. But here's where it goes wrong. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. So look, yes, we're designed for glory, but here's where we err. Here's where we get off the railroad tracks. This is where we get off of the pursuit by which God has oriented us, hardwired us inside ourselves. It's when we go and we seek this glory for ourselves or when we look for other places outside of God himself for this particular glory. You see what I'm saying? So wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking, that you get inward, that you're looking for it for yourself, that you're not doing it in order for God to be the one that is getting the glory, but instead you're wanting to put yourself in his place. And so the things that you do and the places that you go, the accomplishments, the whole end of your life, you want this greatness and you want this glory, but it's not for God himself, you want it for you. It's self-seeking, it's self-serving. And then the places that we go to find this, we, we try to go to all these different places in order for us to find this very thing. This is what James and John are looking for here whenever they come and they make this request to Jesus for the seat at his left and his right. They know that these are the places, they have this mentality, they have this mindset that this Messiah that's coming, that they believe is Jesus, whenever he comes and he conquers, that he's gonna set up a kingdom, except this kingdom's not gonna look any different from what the rest of the world is, except that now he has the power, he has the authority over all things, and so they want a piece of the puzzle. They want a piece of the pie in in our ways of saying it. They want a piece of what Jesus' glory is gonna bring. They're not wanting the seat next to Jesus on his left or right because they want more of Jesus. Another way that a pastor says it is they want to be basically his prime minister and chief of staff. They want the superiority. They want the power. They want the supremacy that comes with all the glory that Jesus will have as king. 
It's not so much that they want more of Jesus, they just want what Jesus is gonna have. And look, we do the same thing all the time. We do this all the time. This is why I wanted the t-shirt in high school. This is why, for some of you, you wanted, you wanted the place on student council. This is why some of us wanted the starting spot for our sports team. This is why some of us wanted the first, cha- the first chair in band. This is why some of us wanted the honor roll. This is why we want promotions. This is why we take glory in our kids and their successes because we're oriented towards glory, but look, we've gotten off the tracks and we want it for ourselves and we want the acclaim, we want the recognition, we want all the things that come with it. And so this thing that we are created for, we look for it in all the wrong places. So look, neither should we, we shouldn't drag James and John through the mud because they have an orientation towards glory, nor should we drag them through the mud because they want the superiority and the places and the things and the significance that come with it because we want it too. We are people at the best with mixed motives. Even at times when we want something good for someone else, oftentimes we're trying to attach ourselves to that person because we want a piece of what their glory brings. So look, we gotta, we gotta stop. We gotta first recognize this is something we all want. We all are oriented towards glory. We all want greatness. We all want things that are beyond us. We want to be a part of things that are grander than ourselves. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, but where we look for it and the ways that we pursue it show us the true state of our heart. We all want this. Jesus knows this, and that's why he responds the way he does in verses 35 or 38 through 40. So here's what it says. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking, speaking to James and John. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And James and John don't know what they're saying. They say, we are able. And Jesus looks them in the eye and says, you will drink the cup that I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So look, here's my best stab at trying to summarize what Jesus' response here is to James and John. It's that Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better. He looks at them and says, you don't know what you are asking He knows that what they're asking in their minds, they don't understand the effect that this will have on them if they get what they ask and request here. They don't understand what they don't know, that Jesus knows things much more fully than what they do, that Jesus, they don't know the cost of what they're even asking for here. Like Jesus just knows better. He does. He knows better than what James and John are requesting here in their finite minds and what they're bringing to Jesus. They think this kingdom is coming and they want a seat at the table. But what Jesus says is like, you don't understand what you're asking. So let's break that down a little bit more, right? So how this will affect them. They, they don't understand this, y'all. 
They don't understand if they are to get what they're requesting of Jesus, what the effects and ramifications are on their life. Verses 42 through 43 says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. So look, when James and John bring this request to Jesus, they're not asking for a new, this new cycle or this new way in which the world works. They're viewing that Jesus' kingdom comes, and so as Jesus' kingdom comes, it's going to work as if the other kingdoms of this world work, and so they want a seat at the table because they want the superiority that they can inflict on other people. That's their heart. That's their desire. They, they, they can't think of something even different from the way that this world works, and so Jesus is saying, look, I know your heart as you're bringing me this request, I know your heart. You view my kingdom as a new era of the current reality, but you fail to see that I've come to fix the current reality, not to install a new fixture of it. As Jesus is responding to them, you don't know what you ask. He's saying, look, my kingdom's gonna be so different. And the effect of if I give you what your request is, means that it's just gonna be more of the same. And so, like, Jesus knows better. He's saying, you don't even know what the effect would be if I gave you what you're asking for here. Look, John Newton, I think, kind of puts it so well. He said, God, he compares God's love and concern for us to like a net. And so he says, if you view God's love and concern like a net, and you are asking, you're praying, you're requesting these things to God. He says this, anything that gets through the net is intended for your good. And so it's gonna, it's gonna play out in the way that God intends for it to play out. But anything that's kept out of the net that doesn't get through is because God knows how it's gonna affect you, it's gonna influence you, and it's not what's actually best for you. And so what Jesus is doing here is saying, I know better. You don't know what this, the effect of this would be if I granted you your request. My love and concern for you are far greater than what you can even think or imagine. So he, he stops and says, you don't know what you're asking. Then Jesus also, he knows the cost of what James and John are requesting here that they don't even comprehend. Again, you don't know what you're asking. So think about this. The moment of God, Christ's greatest glory is at the, at the cross. Look, the crucifixion, who's at his left and his right? It's two thieves. Jesus talks about this cup and this baptism that he has to go through. In historical literature, cup is a sharing of a person's fate. Baptism is this complete immersion of what this person is about to go through. So Jesus, when he asks, are you able to take the cup that I'm gonna have to drink? Are you gonna be able to go through the baptism that I'm about to go through? And they say, we can and we will. We, we're gonna do this with you. Jesus is saying, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know the cost of what you're asking for here, James and John. So again, Jesus is looking back at them and he's saying, I know better. I know better. And then finally, Jesus knows the reality better than James and John, and he also knows it better than us. 
So if James and John knew what Jesus knows, they'd, then they'd know these spots that they're asking for aren't just up for grabs. That there's a bigger plan that God has at work here that Jesus isn't just throwing these, these positions and these titles to whomever asks for it. It's not like first come, first serve here. Jesus says, no, you, you don't even know the reality. You don't know the full grasp of the situation that's going on. If you did, if you knew reality in the way that I know reality, you'd know that this isn't even something that I can grant. And so look, in some fashion, here's what I think Jesus through Mark is trying to get to us. A couple of things. First, just how, how, how knowledgeable our God is. He's, he knows so much more than what you and I can even begin to fathom. The complexities of this life the things of significance and worth, of glory, of greatness, these are things that we just can't fully comprehend. We can't. There's a limitedness to us that we should see in James and John in this passage. It's not something that we should be thinking, why haven't they gotten it yet? Instead, our question should be, how do I see myself in James and John here? God's so much more knowledgeable of everything than I am. But also, we should also see how deeply he cares for us. He cares so deeply. So what does and does not make its way through that net, as John Newton describes, is what's best for us. So the times that we are making these prayers and requests to God, and we're like, these are just unanswered. Why hasn't God answered these requests yet? We can look at passages like this and we can be reminded that God is possibly giving us our answer and the answer may be no. And the answer may be no because he knows the effect it will have on us or he knows the cost that it will have on us or he knows just reality better than us. And so look, just like my kids don't un always understand when my wife, Cherish, and I tell them no, whenever they're asking for more and more candy and they don't understand the effect that sugar has on their bodies, when they're asking for staying up late or whenever they're saying that I don't want to take a nap or whatever it may be, and our answer is no and that they need to go with what we're asking or we're telling them to do and they don't quite comprehend it, Look, in the same way, there's oftentimes that we don't understand God's nose. But where we should land is that Jesus knows better. Jesus knows better. And so we can trust him. We can place our full faith in him because we know that he wants what's best for us. Now, in all of this, Jesus is not denounced or called bad their orientation towards glory or their desire for greatness. But in this last section, he does provide for us a new rubric for it. So in verses 41 through 45, we see Jesus redefine what greatness truly is for us. So here's what he has to say. When the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. 
Don't use the word indignant very often, do we? (laughs) Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here's the scene. The disciples overhear James and John's request, and they get really upset. This word indignant, like it's just, I mean, it's causing their blood to boil. And it's not because of their insensitivity that's caused them to get so upset. It's because James and John beat them to the punch. The very thing that James and John want, we've seen arguments in previous chapters where they're arguing who's the greatest. We see that this is just the state of their heart as well. They're not upset that James and John are so insensitive to Jesus after his third prediction of his death. They're just upset that they got beat to the very request that they want for their own life as well. And so Jesus takes the opportunity to bring all the disciples together. It's kind of like a coach whenever there's, a, uh, there's teammates that are upset between themselves. The coach rallies them in and Jesus takes this opportunity to give them a teaching moment. And in this moment, he provides a new rubric, a new standard, a new rule for what greatness really looks like. So the way of the world from what we see according to Jesus' words is the greater power that you have, the more people serve you. This is what he means when he says that you lord it over people or that you work as tyrants. This is what the way of the world for the Gentiles. The more power you have, that means more people that serve you, which means you have greater superiority, you have greater acclaim, you have greater achievements. All of these things, all the acclaim that comes with that, this is what the way of the world is. But Jesus Jesus says your importance is actually measured by the amount of people that you serve, not the level of roles or titles or superiority that you possess. So Jesus does this because he selects a couple of words that are just really important, all right? So he says the words servant and slave here in his new rubric for what truly great people look like. So this word servant in the original language is diakonos. It's a Greek word for going to wait on tables, Then you also have this word for slave, which is doulos. It's even lower than a servant in the Greek language. They were the last and the least of all society. I mean, Jesus is, he's basically making this comparison that's an oxymoron that seems to not even make sense. When he's saying, if you really want to know what greatness is, you look at a person that serves tables. If you really want to know what greatness looks like, It's the person that takes up the towel and goes washes people nasty feet and sandals that have been caked with dirt and mud. They're the ones that are at the lowest of the totem pole. If you wanna know what true greatness looks like, you look at these as examples. In God's kingdom, greatness is not defined by a person's level of power, but by their measure of service. Jesus is working to teach the disciples as well as us that if you really want to find greatness in this life, it's not by climbing the ladder of success, but it's actually by going and descending down to the place of service. 
That's what Jesus is trying to get across to both the disciples and to us that, hey, everything you've thought about greatness and glory, look, I'm turning it on its head. The things that you thought, the things that you've lived by, these orientations that you've had in this life, look, I'm coming, I'm just completely obliterating it all together. So the things that you at least put in a synonym for what a greatness and glory looks like are the very things that I'm going to compare it to. And what Jesus is working by doing this, he's, he's trying to reorient their love. He's trying to reorient what love looks like for us. The desire for greatness, as we see within our world, it's bent towards self. We, we think about us and what it's gonna bring for us in the measures of greatness that we're gonna experience and the status that we're gonna have before other people. But what Jesus is trying to get at by making this comparison to servant is slave is he's trying to show us that true love focuses his attention on other people and not ourselves. And the greatest example that we have of this greatness and this glory is Jesus himself, which is why we see in verse 45, Jesus say, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus spent his whole life, his whole life thinking of God and others. And thinking of God, he would regularly get away from the crowds, the fame, the acclaim that would come with him. He would tell his disciples, they were, the crowds are coming. And he says, hey, we're gonna go and we're gonna seclude ourselves. We're gonna get away because I need to be with the Father. And so he would go and get away and he spend time in prayer and he would invest in his relationship with his heavenly Father. You also see this in Jesus' perfect obedience to God that this is the way that he's oriented towards God himself is that he loves God so much. There's, his love for God supersedes anything else in this life that he perfectly obeys him. But then he also thinks of others and not just himself. We see this in the way that Jesus responds to the crowds when they approach him because he has compassion for the crowds. Literally, he, in Matthew chapter nine, that they're distressed and dejected as if a sheep without a shepherd. He looks at them and he's like, he has, he, he has this, it's like his heart comes out of his chest for these people. He uses his power not for himself, but for healing and for miracles and for bringing this restoration to other people in their, in their lives. This is the way that he uses his power. It's not just for himself. And look, the ultimate illustration of Christ's service to us is when we see his death on the cross. Look, as selfish as we are, and we don't like to hear that, but we are, y'all. As selfish as we are, Jesus is able to do something that we could never do for ourselves. Because Jesus, what his ultimate goal, the very road that he's been walking his whole entire life for, the end of his life, the very means and the purpose and the goal of which Jesus came was not just so that he could walk in perfect unity with his father, that happened. Not just so that he could perfectly obey God, that did happen. But everything that his life has been leading towards is so that he could go to the cross for you and me, the very thing that we could not do for ourselves. 
the greatest act of service that anyone could ever do. And it's not just for people that Jesus would call his friends at that point in time. What the Bible tells us is that Jesus on this road, he goes to the cross and what he does is he goes to that place for his enemies. That's why there's a ransom that's needed here. A ransom is this price that's delivered by purchase. So what what this is saying is that there's a way that we have become so enslaved that we are so turned over to our sin that has never been our disposition for us to, to, to choose Jesus, but Jesus comes and he dies for those people that are completely opposed against him. That's every single one of us that are in these seats tonight. Me standing here in this, on this platform before you. Like, that's where we're all at. Jesus is saying, look, I didn't just come to those who have chosen to follow me here and now, like I came for all people because everyone's opposed to me. Even those 12 that are around me right now, they all desert him in the most crucial time of his life. It's the greatest example of what it looks like to be a servant and a slave because it's what his whole life has been oriented towards. And he put his money where his mouth is whenever the point in time came because he laid down his life. People didn't take it from him. He lays down his life as a ransom. Look for you and me. The greatest example of what it looks like to be oriented towards greatness in the kingdom of God. Look, this is life-changing. This This will blow your world into pieces. Whenever the the center of your worldview, the center of your universe is the perfect savior hung on a cross, your life cannot look the same. When this is your new orientation, when this is the way that now life is to look for you, it completely changes everything. Your life, it should look different. As the rest of the world continues to try to climb the ladder and we're trying to climb down, they're trying to climb up the ladder and we're trying to climb down it, it's gonna look different. It should look weird. It shouldn't look like the rest of the world. But look, Jesus is saying it's better. This desire that we have for fulfillment, for significance, for worth, Jesus is saying, look, climbing up the ladder is never gonna get it. It's only whenever you begin to descend. That's when you'll finally find greatness and glory. And I'm your pattern. It's what Mark is saying. It's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. It's what he's saying to you and me. So look here, the question for us is then how? If this is completely different from the way that we have lived and functioned in this life, then how? How are we to do this? I have two points of application for us and then we'll close. The first one is this, is that it requires humility, that you humble yourself. Look, before you can serve others in the capacity that Jesus lays out for us here, it first requires a measure of humility in our life. It means that we must come 
and reckon with the reality that we need a savior. Before we can function in the way that Jesus has put before his disciples and put before us here, it means that we have to reckon that there's a ransom that needs to be paid for our life. Look, if you're looking at what Jesus places before his disciples here and you think, oh, that's an easy fix. I can do that. Oh, okay, I'm just supposed to serve other people. I'm supposed to orient myself towards other people. If that's your response, then look, you're completely missing it. What you're likely doing is you're just comparing to other people that are around you and you're just thinking, oh, I serve people better than, and fill in the blank. But what you need to realize is that Jesus is your pattern here. And that anything that falls short of who Jesus is in terms of our service towards other people, then it doesn't, it doesn't measure up. It doesn't meet the standard by which Jesus is proclaiming here. What the proper response here is, I, there's no way. There's absolutely no way with the way that I experience, I know that I'm wired internally, that I can ever live the way that Jesus is calling me to. If there's even a, a chance, if there's even a hope that I can be oriented towards other people in such a way that I serve them as a servant and a slave, then I need to be completely changed from the inside out. And look, the only person that can do this is Jesus himself. What we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 is this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. So look, if you want this life, if you want this, this greatness and this glory that Jesus is putting before us, you have to stop and reckon with the reality that there is a ransom that's needed for your life. And this, this, is, a, this is a huge act of humility to come and say that I can't do for myself what God is saying is needed, that only Jesus can do it for me, that requires humility. And so look, humble yourself. The thing that every single one of us want, this greatness and this glory, if you want it, it first requires that you humble yourself, that you place your full hope and faith in this Jesus by humbling him, placing your faith and your hope in the work that he's done for you in order that you can then have this new creation inside of you that he reworks and reorients everything about you. And then once that's happened, the second one is pretty simple. Go serve somebody. Go serve somebody. Look, this passage should completely redefine positions of authority for us. It should change everything that we think about with the roles and the places that God has given us in this life. Here's a few questions for you to kind of think through this of how you can reorient these positions of authority that God has given you. Look, every single one of us in this room, it doesn't matter where you're at in your life. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter if you're at the very top of the totem pole or you're at the middle or at the very bottom. There's every single one of us has a place of authority and significance and impression that we have on people's lives. And so look, this, these questions for all of us. So here's, what, here's the first question. What does it look like for me to leverage my influence for people rather than for myself? So 
Our orientation is I want to climb the ladder. I want to, get to, I want to get the promotion. I want the status before people so that I can look impressive before others. But what Jesus is saying here is that these are gifts that he gives to us. When we get these positions of authority, we're not to leverage them for ourselves anymore. But if we function by the definition of uh, greatness that Jesus gives us here, we now view these positions as a means to serve other people. So how do I leverage my influence for people rather than for myself? Here's the second question. How can I use my position in order to bless more people rather than to get ahead of them? The people that God has placed around me. My life is no longer a competition against theirs. Now my life is a place where it's a pleasure to serve them. So what does it look like for me to step into that? What does it look like for me to now be oriented to try to bless people rather than viewing them as competition and trying to get ahead of them? And then thirdly, who needs help around me? What is required of me to serve them? And how can I use what has been given to me in order to do so? Look, what Jesus places before us here should completely reorient positions of authority for us. So the things that God has given you, these are now a means to serve and bless other people rather than to just serve yourself. So what does it look like for you? Go serve somebody. There's a, a pastor, um, Charles Spurgeon, back in the 1800s. And uh, he has a summary, I think, of everything that we've been trying to say here. So we'll conclude with this, all right? Here's what he says. Speak, like this is a passage from a sermon that he wrote specific, specifically on this passage that we looked at tonight. It says this, the true soldier is an ambitious being. He pants for honor, seeks for glory. On the field of strife, the battlefield, he gathers his laurels, literally his accomplishments. And amidst a thousand dangers, he reaps renown or he has heritage or he gets acclaim. The Christian is fired by higher ambitions than even the earthly warrior ever knew. He sees a crown that can never fade. He loves a king who best of all is worthy to be served. He has a motive within him which moves him to the noble deeds and look, a divine spirit impelling him to the most self-sacrificing actions. We all want glory and greatness. We're hardwired for it. We're oriented towards it. It's not something that we should apologize for. God has created us in this way. The way, the way that has gotten off the tracks is just the way that we pursue it and the places that we go for it. Jesus knows better. He not only knows more, but he knows what's best for us. He knows the cost. He knows its effect on us. He knows reality better than we could ever imagine. Jesus, he redefines the rubric of greatness. In God's kingdom, it's no longer power, but service. And if you truly want to be great, you don't climb the ladder, but you descend it to places of service. So look, humble yourself, and then go serve somebody. Let's pray.